You're listening to The Corbett Report. CorbettReport.com Welcome back to the podcast, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome back. I am James Corbett of CorbettReport.com, coming to you, as always, from the sunny climes of Western Japan here in December of 2022. And you are tuned into episode 434 of the Corbett Report podcast, Canada's Freedom Convoy Commission. Now, for the purposes of today's podcast, I want you to cast your mind back to January of 2022. And although that typically would not be a particularly mentally taxing exercise, it seems to be in this hyper-accelerating era of non-stop 24-7 distraction, where it is increasingly difficult to remember back to January of this year, in the deepest, darkest recesses of the scamdemic, after two years of utter lunacy being perpetrated on the world in the name of the scamdemic, and after the spirits and hopes of so many people had been broken, after the various pieces of the Orwellian digital gulag police state biosecurity tyranny had been slotted into place, vaccine mandates and QR codes and the threat of global vaccine passes and what have you had been thrust upon the public. So many people were in despair in the absolute depths of depression, especially in the Northern Hemisphere winter, especially in a climate like Canada, especially in a political climate like Canada, where, as opposed to most of the rest of the liberal, democratic Western world, Canada was not attempting to quietly back away from some of the worst excesses of tyranny it had imposed upon its population. It was actually doubling down. Mandates and the threats of various uh, uh, political and legal ramifications for holdouts against those mandates were tightening like a noose around the neck of the Canadian public. Things had reached their nadir. And then a miracle occurred. Why an anti-vaccine mandate trucker convoy is driving across Canada. A convoy, a big old convoy, of truckers is traveling across Canada to protest new federal vaccine requirements for cross-border essential workers. Supporters driving in their own vehicles joined for parts of the journey to protest the mandates, while others have donated millions of dollars through GoFundMe to help finance the convoy. Live streams, of course, posted on Facebook. And there's the big hashtag, Freedom Convoy 2022, has trended on Twitter when it's been allowed. I've also seen this referred to, James, as hashtag bear hug. Bear hug arriving in Ottawa, January 29th. Canadian truckers convoy for freedom. So these truckers were taking it upon themselves to try something different, i.e. convoy, and say, you know what? This is about our freedoms, our freedoms of choice, our freedoms to choose what we think is best for us and for our children. For me, I knew early on it was going to be it was going to be big, you know. And because I mean, as they started to roll these trucks out of BC coming to Alberta, there's no doubt it was going to be big. 
sounds of horns blared all over downtown Ottawa on a frigid night. The cold not keeping protesters from delivering their message. I'm a vaxxed trucker and I'm here to support my unvaxxed colleagues. It's wrong to force people to undergo a med medical procedure against their will. What I have been seeing so far is every single Canadian doing what they do and is peacefully protesting and loving each other and spreading cheer and hope and happiness. Yeah! Yes, in the course of a few weeks there in the depths of winter 2022, suddenly something was taking place in Canada and freedom was on the lips of people all across Canada and around the world who were increasingly watching this phenomenon of the trucker convoy rolling through town after town on its way to Ottawa to protest the vaccine mandate digital gulag biosecurity system in Canada. It was an incredible phenomenon, and I ask you to take your mind back to that mental space of January 2022, because it is increasingly difficult for us, I think, to remember just how energizing what was taking place at that time really was. Uh, it was something that I can attest to not only for myself, watching obviously from afar, but from so much of the feedback that I received from Canadians who themselves were going out in their little town uh, to watch the convoy roll through, and thousands of people joining them out there, waving flags, cheering these truckers on, and giving them their, their blessing, their, their energy to go and take to Ottawa. Yes, this is it. We are doing something. We're standing up. We are protesting. We will not simply lie down and take this tyranny. It was poo-poo, dismiss, and, oh, that's not going to change anything all you want. The very fact that this energized millions of people and put names and faces and actual on-the-ground reality to the frustrations that people had been spending the last couple of years trying to suppress or being suppressed from expressing was an important phenomenon, and that's exactly, precisely why the stewards of the Canadian police state, let alone the stewards of the growing globalist New World Order Great Reset tyranny, had to crack down on this phenomenon as horribly, as completely, as effectively as possible. And so, that is precisely why Canadian Prime Minister Justin Castro, I mean Trudeau, had to call the protesters' names and then bravely run away under the cover of COVID. The small fringe minority of people who are on their way to Ottawa or who are uh, holding unacceptable uh, views uh, that they're expressing do not represent the views of Canadians who have been there for each other, who know that following the science and stepping up to protect each other is the best way to continue to ensure our freedoms, our rights, our values as a country. 
There's a new trend on social media tonight, hashtag where is Justin Trudeau? It's not a rhetorical question. It's not funded by Canada's opposition either. It's a genuine qu query of ordinary Canadians. Where is their prime minister? Unfortunately, nobody knows. Trudeau says he has contracted the Wuhan virus, but no one knows where he's isolating. Normally, he would be in his Ottawa office on Mondays. Today, he wasn't. He and his family were moved to an undisclosed location. In other words, he fled. Do you know why? Because the white knight of democracy could not handle a protest. What played out from there is one of the most phenomenal set of events that we have seen in recent times and plays out like a Hollywood movie writ large. Uh, it certainly was, it did culminate in one of the most important showdowns of the scandemic era, politically, socially, and otherwise. But for those who missed it, some of the details of the way that this convoy played out was truly incredible. You had, for example, the Nazi false flag, literal false flag of the Oh, they, you better believe this is what the protesters are really about. Uh, masked protester who was part of the convoy or something, right? But anyway, waving a literal Nazi flag. Yeah, you better believe that's, that's what the average trucker was there talking about. And so everyone better be afraid. Be afraid of these horrible truckers and the people who came out in support of them in droves to help them. For example, not just helping them by feeding them, giving them places to stay while they're in Ottawa, uh, showing up with for to support them, families jumping in bouncy castles, singing O Canada, waving the flag, an incredible display of camaraderie. But of course, well, you better believe this being current year, how else could this be explained? How else could we possibly explain this phenomenon of Canadians standing up for freedom other than the idea that, well, clearly this must be influenced and financed from abroad? Given Canada's support of Ukraine in this current crisis with Russia, it, I don't know if it's far-fetched to ask, but, but there is concern that Russian actors could be continuing to fuel things uh, as this as this protest grows but perhaps even instigating it from from the outset leave it to the mockingbird repeaters of the state funded CBC to ask the hard hitting questions huh and then what did we see take place from there there well of course that brought in the question of foreign influence and what kind of people are funding this. After all, it could not possibly be average Canadians. I mean, there are some of those, and those people will be found and fired? Legally punished? Question mark? At any rate, they will be found. And in the meantime, well, if there are, if there is this foreign influence that's coming through these funders, well, we have to do something about that. So, of course, the GoFundMe funds got seized and held and frozen so that they could not be dispersed to the protesters to whom they were supposed to go. And then we had Gives and Go, which, of course, took over that role of attempting to disperse funds to the protesters, culminating in the big hack and the Gives and Gone scandal that I documented in episode 413 of this podcast. And then, as things began to escalate, and those 
poor, besieged Ottawa citizens were being put upon and viciously, violently aggressed upon by the microaggressions of people honking horns and bouncy castles and people uh, draping flags over the statue of Terry Fox and other such just horrible desecrations unimaginable in Canadian history. Oh, they're singing Oh Canada. Oh, won't someone save me from these racist, misogynist Nazis? Well, that is, of course, the point at which the loaded gun in the room was pulled. And you had Prime Minister Trudeau standing up in front of Canada, declaring that, yes, as you have suspected, things have now reached the point at which this is an official national emergency. And so, the Emergencies Act was declared on February 14th, 2022. After discussing with cabinet and caucus, after consultation with premiers from all provinces and territories, after speaking with opposition leaders, the federal government has invoked the Emergencies Act to supplement provincial and territorial capacity to address the blockades and occupations. And just like that, protesting was now an illegal activity in the advanced, modern, liberal democracy, a beacon of freedom in the Western world, Canada. Mind you, only protests that are officially disallowed by the government, ones that rise to the level of a national emergency, of course, not the sanctioned, allowable protests, the, the BLM marches and what have you. Those can go on, and those are fine. Those do not present a threat to public order. It is this type of protest that presents a threat to public order. Hmm, I wonder, I wonder what Trudeau would have to say about the ability of or the right of people to protest in order to affect political change. And I wonder what he would say under different circumstances if it was, say, people advocating for a different type of political change. Well, more on which in a, in a short while. But yes, protesting is now illegal, and they can declare any gathering that they want to be an illegal gathering and disperse it using any means at their disposal. So, of course, that was the green light and the carte blanche for the jackbooted thugs of the Canadian police state to move in and to start to employ brutal violence against the peaceful protesters. Right after that, the 49-year-old woman who uses a walker was run over by Toronto Police Service's horses that rolled through the crowd. Onlookers were heard yelling at police to stop. Stand down! Oh my gosh! Oh my goodness! Oh my goodness! Look what you did! Look what you did to her! Look what you did to her! Look what you did to her! You trampled on the lady who was unaccessible! The video was posted to YouTube and watched 34,000 times. The woman has been interviewed by the Special Investigations Unit. They say she sustained serious injuries. Her family in social media posts said that that includes a broken collarbone. But she does not want to speak to media right now, according to her family. APTN isn't naming her. 
Uh, there was a much faster pace that was undertaken by the officers. Um, it was more aggressive, and there was a harder element right behind them. Uh, the emergency response team, who are tactical officers with the RCMP, very elite unit, were being used to clear out the tents and also being used to clear out the trucks. And they had their weapons out and drawn. Uh, I did not see them pointing them at anybody, but it certainly was a much more aggressive presence, and it was much more rapid. They cleared all of Wellington Street and the side streets in a day in something that experts thought might take as long as a week to do. I was on the front lines covering the protest when uh, one of the officers decided to ram his baton into my ribs and kind of kidney area over there. And uh, yeah, if you didn't see that, check it out. Okay, okay. I'm, tr I'm trying. I'm trying. I'm trying. Okay, I was just brutally attacked. There's some sort of <laughs> gas in the air. I just took a baton to my ribs. That was brutal. Some guy just, oh my god, I think I might have a, a bruised rib or something. They're advancing again right now. I told you they're moving quick, very quick. I gotta get out of here. Oh, wow. There's nowhere else to go for these people. What the f? But it wasn't just the imposition of brute physical violence against those who would seek to protest in the name of freedom that marked this invocation of the Emergencies Act. Although it was that too, it was also the imposition of financial violence, the uncorking of the bottle on an absolutely bone-chillingly terrifying portent of what is in store as we slip further and further into the cashless central bank digital currency uh, control grid of the future. And who was it who helped uncork that bottle? Who was there to announce and foist that upon the Canadian public other than a representative of perhaps the true power behind the Canadian throne, the buddy of uh, and vice Prime Minister, the Deputy Prime Minister of Canadian Prime Minister Justin World Economic Forum Young Global Leader Trudeau, Deputy Prime Minister Christia World Economic Forum Board of Trustees member Freeland. On Monday, Canada invoked the emerge cabinet invoked the Emergencies Act to restore public order. Information is now being shared by law enforcement with Canada's financial institutions. Financial service providers have already taken action based on that information. The emergency measures we put in place are being used, they are having an impact, and they will have a growing impact in the days to come. Since Monday's announcement, I've spoken directly with the heads of our major banks, and with the director of FinTrack. My cabinet colleagues and I are meeting regularly, very regularly, including with the commissioner of the RCMP to discuss next steps. 
Now, I trust that the gravity of these events do not need to be elaborated on uh, for the purposes of my audience, if for no other reason than I have talked about them on this podcast in the past. For example, my uh, my podcast on states of emergency and on Give, Send, Gone, and my other work on this topic specifically over the course of the past year, let alone everything that I have covered over the course of the past 15 years on the Corbett Report. But for those who do need this in some sort of perspective, it should be noted that this invocation of the Emergencies Act was the first time in the history of the Act that it had actually been invoked, that that trigger had been pulled. The Emergencies Act, though, was just a a successor to the War Measures Act, which had been invoked in history, exactly as you might expect from the name, during times of war. For example, World War I, World War II, and the only other time that the War Measures Act was invoked was by Justin Trudeau's erstwhile father, Pierre Trudeau, when, of course, as any Canadian would know in that famous, infamous clip of him being questioned by a reporter on the steps of Parliament, how far are you willing to go? Just watch me. Well, we did just watch as father and then son suspended the rights of Canadians for the purposes of dealing with a national emergency. But wait, what what exactly is a threat to public order? Who gets to declare what kind of threat constitutes a, a national security threat? Is there some sort of legislation or legal precedent for this? Is there some criteria, a threshold that has to be met? Who gets to make that decision and on what grounds? And then how can that be reviewed? Well, more on that in a moment. But today, let's dive into this question of the invocation of the Emergencies Act and the ramifications that that action brings with it. And what better place to start than on the Government of Canada website, specifically the Justice Laws website, where you can read the actual Emergencies Act. It is there for public perusal, of course. So you can glean from this act, for example, for the purposes of this act, a national emergency is an urgent and critical situation of a temporary nature that a. seriously endangers the lives, health, or safety of Canadians and is of such proportions or nature as to exceed the capacity or authority of a province to deal with it, an interesting specification, or b. seriously threatens the ability of the government of Canada to preserve the sovereignty, security, and territorial integrity of Canada, we are under attack, and that cannot be effectively dealt with under any other law of Canada. So keep in mind, there are two thresholds here that have to be met. It either has to be serious, serious endangerment of lives, health, or safety of Canadians, and of such proportion or nature as to exceed the capacity or authority of a province to deal with it, or it has to seriously threaten the ability of the government of Canada to preserve the sovereignty and integrity of Canada itself, and, so one of those two stipulations, and it cannot be effectively dealt with under any other existing laws. So that's a pretty high threshold, wouldn't you say? And did this convoy really rise to that level? Well, you can find out more from the Government of Canada's propaganda, which, of course, well, why not? And the the Department of Justice put up on their page in February as this was being invoked, and people were obviously questioning, what does all of this mean? Well, obviously, the Department of Justice Canada had weighed in with their handy-dandy explainer. Don't don't bother to read the act. Don't look at the actual language of this and find out precisely what is a public order emergency. What is the interpretation? What definitions do we are under 
use here. Threats to the security of Canada has the meaning assigned by Section 2 of the Canadian Security Intelligence Services Act, the CSIS Act. And there's a link. Well, oh, don't bother to go and read this all for yourself and find out exactly how the public order is declared. No, just trust the government of Canada to summarize it for you in a backgrounder. So here we are. The Emergencies Act, which became law in 1988, is a federal law that can be used by the federal government in the event of a national emergency. All right. Barebones definition. The act contains a specific definition of national emergency that makes clear how serious a situation needs to be relied upon uh, be, to be before the act can be relied upon. And they go on to explain and summarize what we actually just read in the act itself. It also goes on to point out that there are four types of emergencies that can be declared under the Act. A public welfare emergency, a public order emergency, an international emergency, and a war emergency. Well, clearly this is not a public warfare emergency, an international emergency, or a war emergency. It was a public order emergency, and so that was specifically what was declared on February 14th. The Emergencies Act can be invoked or grant temporary additional and necessary powers to the federal government when provincial, territorial, and federal tools are no longer sufficient to deal effectively with the serious issues being faced. So, again, this not only has to constitute a threat to national security, but it has to be a threat that cannot be dealt with in any other way than invoking these special emergency powers for the government to abrogate basic Canadian rights. And so it says... For example, let's just pick some examples out of thin air here in February of 2022 of things that the government could do. For example, regulating and prohibiting public assemblies, including blockades, other than lawful advocacy, protest, or dissent. And what is lawful advocacy, protest, or dissent? Whatever the government says it is, right? Designating and securing places where blockades are to be prohibited. Directing specified persons to render essential services to relieve impacts of blockades on Canada's economy with compensation. I.e., oh, I don't know, forcing tow truck companies to tow trucks away if they will not comply with orders to to remove themselves, hmm? right? Like that kind of action, which definitely did become a point that we will get into later. But at any rate, uh, then, of course, they, they go on to talk about the impact of the Emergencies Act on individual rights. Calm down, guys. Don't worry. The Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms Charter continues to protect individual rights as the government of Canada takes the necessary steps to safeguard the safety and well-being of Canadians, says the Government of Canada website. (laughs) Sure. So what does that actually mean? Well, specifically, Section 1 of the Charter allows the government to put limits on rights and freedoms if those limits are set out in law, pursue an important goal which can be justified in a free and democratic society, justified by whom, and who gets to decide whether that was justified, and pursue that goal in a reasonable and proportionate manner. Again, all completely open to interpretation and completely at the whims of these elected officials who govern over the country, right? So, don't worry, guys, you're totally protected. The Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms still stands, and the government can then limit your rights and freedoms in any way it likes based on its own say-so, essentially, is what is being said here. But again, don't worry, guys, there's a process here. You see, this isn't just a dictatorship. It isn't just ruled by decree, states of emergency, schmate of emergency, whatever. Don't worry about it, guys. There's transparency 
and accountability. So there's a process here. There has to be a declaration. The government of Canada must formally declare an emergency, effective from the day it is made. Then the government tables a motion to Parliament. Parliament votes on it. The Senate or House of Commons are recalled if necessary. Government issues and tables orders and regulations to be followed under the emergency. A parliamentary review committee is established to review the government's actions on an ongoing basis. Parliament exercises the powers that are granted under the act, and then declarations ex expires on a preset timetable, or it is extended. So the declaration expires after 30 days unless an extension is confirmed within specific timelines by both the House of Commons and the Senate. So there's all sorts of checks and balances that are at play here. And before we get to the final one, which is the real purpose of our convening, electronic telephonic media convening here today, let's just go through and put on the record, yes, the federal government did declare a public order emergency under the Emergencies Act to end disruptions, blockades, and the occupation of the city of Ottawa. And here is the news released from Public Safety Canada, which has various quick facts and quotes and other information about the Emergencies Act, um, as we were basically looking at before. Um, you can also get the Government of Canada Declaration and Revocation of a Public Order Emergency under the Emergencies Act to end disruptions, blockades, and the occupation of the City of Ottawa. Again, from the Government of Canada website, where it goes through, it of course talks about the Emergencies Act and links to it again, def defines the national emergency procedural steps, and links to such things as the actual proclamation declaring a public order emergency that was issued on February 14th, and then the revocation of that order that came a couple of weeks later, and then goes through the orders and regulations that were um, put out as a uh, as part of this act, for example, the emergency measures regulations and the emergency economic measures order. All of these are interesting and important documents if you are interested in the legal wranglings and doings of the government. So, of course, this link will be in the show notes for today's episode at corbettreport.com slash freedom convoy. But Let's just take a look at the actual declaration. So this is from the Canada Gazette. It was uh, registered on February 15th. And here is the uh, proclamation, a, pro a proclamation, blah, blah, blah. Whereas the council of governor and council, blah, blah, blah. Whereas da, 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 now know you that we, blah, blah, blah. And we do specify the emergency as constituted of... All right, here, they laid it out in black and white. What is the emergency that they're responding to here? A, the continuing blockades by both persons and motor vehicles that is occurring at various locations throughout Canada and the continuing threats to oppose measures to remove the blockades. And then, of course, they raise the specter of serious, serious violence against persons or property, including critical infrastructure. Uh, B, the adverse effects on the Canadian economy recovering from the scandemic, blah, 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 and threats to its economic security resulting from the impacts of blockades or critical infrastructure. C, the adverse effects resulting from the impacts of the blockades on Canada's relationships with its trading partners, including, oh, I don't know, Zimbabwe? No. Uh, Brazil? No. Oh, the United States. That's right. I wonder if they had a part to play in the invocation of the Emergencies Act. Uh, D, the breakdown in the distribution chain and availability of essential goods and services, blah, blah, blah. But do you think that might occur by imposing uh, mandates on people who would be authorized to do things like 
operating this critical infrastructure and bringing goods across the border and things like that and artificially limiting the workforce? Do you think that might be a threat to national security under the terms of this very declaration? Hmm. Let's leave that up for the uh, scholars in the crowd to uh, pontificate. Uh, about And then E, the potential for an increase in the level of unrest and violence that would further threaten the safety and security of Canadians. Uh, uh, of course, this is a, one of those booby-trapped phrases. The potential for an increase in the level of unrest and violence that would further threaten the safety and security of Canadians, implying that there is a level of unrest and violence that is, at the time of this declaration, threatening the safety and security of Canadians, which, of course, is hogwash. What exactly was the threat to safety and security of Canadians that was actively taking place? What was the unrest? What was the violence? That was all coming from the jackbooted goons of the Canadian police state. It was not coming from the peaceful protesters. So, um, again, the potential for an increase... An increase from zero? Well, yeah, I guess I guess the potential is there, but then again, the potential is always there. So, mealy-mouthed rhetoric that was used to invoke this um, this Emergencies Act. And then we do further specify that the special temporary measures that may be necessary for dealing with the emergency, as anticipated by the Governing Council, are A. Measures to regulate or prohibit public assembly. B. Measures to authorize or direct any person to render essential services, like tow trucks. C. Measures to authorize or direct any person to render essential services to relieve the impacts of the blockade. And then blah, blah, blah. The RCMP can enforce municipal and provincial laws, blah, 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 imposition of fines or imprisonment, other temporary measures authorized under Section 19, yada, yada. Okay? So that is the actual declaration, and there is the government's stated reason for why this was invoked. And then uh, you got the, uh, the revocation, again, registered in the Canadian Gazette on February 23rd. So... Just over a week later, you get the actual revocation, because whereas, in light of these facts, the Governor and Council believes that sufficient powers, without those temporary and exceptional measures, exist to resolve any residual or prevent any new illegal blockade or public assembly that may be reasonably be expected to lead to a breach of the peace. So, we got it under control, guys. Oh, good. So, all done and dusted. But wait, there was one more thing in that uh, uh, list that we saw earlier of the transparency and accountability that comes with the act, an inquiry will be held. After the emergency has ended, the Emergencies Act requires the government to hold an inquiry and table a report to each House of Parliament within 365 days after expiration or revocation of the declaration of emergency. Well, we just saw the emergency was revoked and registered in the Canada Gazette on February 23rd, 2022. So, well, if I'm reading this right, that means that there must be a commission formed, an inquiry held to look into the matter of the invocation of this Emergencies Act and table a report on it to each House of Parliament by, I guess, by February 23rd, 2023, right? And so it is that in case you blinked and missed it, yes, Canada did announce and then hold a commission into the Invocation of the Emergencies Act. Trudeau on the stand as Emergencies Act inquiry begins this week, and we grab it from some of the folks who are most on top of this story, thecountersignal.com. 
Prime Minister Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau will finally have to answer for his dictatorial use of the Emergencies Act, which he invoked to brutalize peaceful freedom convoy protesters opposed to his pandemic regime. Of course, we covered that pretty extensively here on New World next week. The Public Order Emergency Commission announced hearings would begin this week. First appearance scheduled for what is tomorrow to me, James, but already Thursday to you. Trudeau, along with his Liberal Party culprits, Deputy Prime Minister Christia Freeland, Transport Minister Omar Al-Gabra, Justice Minister David Lametti, and Public Safety Minister Marco Mendocino, are included in a list of 65 other witnesses to testify before the commission. During the six weeks of factual hearings, the commission intends to call more than 50 witnesses, including protest participants, representatives of law enforcement, officials from federal, provincial, and municipal governments, as well as individuals, businesses, and organizations impacted by the protests. So said the official press release. As first reported by the Counter Signal in April, Trudeau appointed longtime Liberal Party of Canada donor Justice Paul Rouleau to lead the investigation into his own government. Hey, buddy, will you investigate me? The Prime Minister invoked the law in February, marking the first time it's been used since former Canadian Prime Minister Brian Mulroney created the law to target his political enemies. It allowed the government to freeze the bank account, the, the current use of it, allowed the government to freeze the bank accounts of anyone associated with the protest and even gave the RCMP powers to crack down on crypto wallets, as was exclusively reported by the counter signal. There are concerns, as we will probably have here in the New World Next Week kingdom, that the commission won't successfully hold Trudeau and his ministers responsible for their severe government overreach. However, it will allow the opposition party conservatives to grill cabinet members over their repeated false claims about the convoy and its supporters. And sometimes, James, that's the best we can hope for is to get their misdeeds on their own record and spoken about, you know, in, in the courts, as it were. And indeed, for those international listeners who probably were not following at all, or those Canadian listeners who probably were at least following the surface-level reports on this through the mainstream government-funded media, uh, you may or may not know that, yes, there was a public order commission, uh, emergency commission, that was convened. Uh, it was established in April of this year and convened weeks of public hearings, uh, 36 days in all of public hearings between October 13th and December 2nd, the results of which are all available Online, the public hearings, at any rate, are all available online. Various documents that were submitted by the various legal counsels representing various viewpoints in this proceeding were uh, tabled and are available, again, for reading online at publicorderemergencycommission.ca. So there is a documentary record of went on, but if... What went on? But if you, uh, if you weren't following it as this roller coaster was on its route. Boy, what an incredibly wild ride that you missed. And including some things that probably many people in the corporate report audience probably would not have even expected. For example, you would have thought that the police and uh, the, the various police agencies involved at various levels of municipal and provincial policing would have put up some resistance to the idea would have essentially run cover for the government and said, yes, this Emergencies Act was absolutely necessary and we couldn't have done it without it. But no, no, they quite 
readily tended to admit that, yes, this was a emergency of sorts that could have been dealt with with their regular policing powers in direct contravention to what we've already seen as one of the thresholds for invoking the act in the first place. The OPB has significant experience in responding to protests, blockades, and similar activities. While the emergencies legislation, in particular the provincial legislation, provided useful tools, there was sufficient legal authority in their absence to deal with the protest activities that took place over this period of time. We had, as I indicated earlier, considered all of the legislative authority uh, that was uh, available in the toolbox for, for law enforcement to deal with this and felt that there was sufficient. I would agree with the statement that there are sufficient legislative authorities within existence at the time to give the police the authority to act. The challenge was that to support their actions in that manner and to ultimately remove those vehicles, we required a, a logistical capacity that the police lacked. Not a legislative authority, but a logistical capacity. And we were looking to the government of Canada and the Canadian Armed Forces to, to help augment that logistical capacity gap. Uh, candidly, the police already knew about these, this legislation. And, and the and police that. didn't request any additional enforcement at um, authorities? No. Uh, was it your view that the Federal Emergencies Act could help the police resolve the situation in Ottawa? Yes. And so if that's the case, then were you of the view that the Ontario measures were not enough to bring those protests to an end? No. No, it was not your view? Correct. I, th I thought that the uh, Provincial Emergency Declaration and the orders that flowed from them were sufficient to assist uh, the police in resolving both Ottawa and Windsor. Having said that, the um, emergency orders that flowed from the federal emergency declaration were certainly helpful, and I know that they were used by law enforcement. So if it was your view that the provincial measures were enough to bring these protests, at least in Ottawa and Windsor, to an end, um, why did the government support then the invocation of the Emergencies Act by the federal government? That would be a question for uh, Premier Ford and Minister Jones. And in fact, as legal scholars will tell you, the entire purpose of crafting the Emergencies Act to replace the War Measures Act was to more adequately control and contain and make sure that this is not invoked willy-nilly for any type of crisis. And part of that was explicitly in writing, tying the idea of the declaration of a public order emergency into the definition, the declaration under the CSIS Act, the Canadian Security Intelligence Service Act, a declaration from CSIS that this did represent a threat to national security as defined in the CSIS Act. So again, you would expect the CSIS representatives to come out and say, absolutely, this was a threat to national security, but mm, nope. These questions are going to be, I'm, I'm, you're going to be able to know exactly where I'm going, so I'm just going to be blunt. Um, you didn't see any evidence in the intelligence of espionage or in support of espionage. Is that correct? That's correct. 
You didn't see any uh, evidence in the intelligence of sabotage or anything in support of sabotage. That's correct. You didn't see anything in the evidence, uh, in uh, any evidence in the intelligence of any form of foreign influenced activities within or relating to Canada that involved the threat to any person. I saw media accounts, yes. I saw no information collected or intelligence produced in that regard, no, to support that, no. Is it fair to say that at no point during the convoy protest did you receive reliable intelligence that would lead you to conclude that there was a risk to national security that would rise above the, the potential threat to national security that you identified in that report? That's correct. There, Director Venu states that he learned that the EA referenced the threat definition set out in Section 2 of the CSIS Act once the federal government began to seriously consider invoking the EA between February 10th and 13th. He requested that the service prepare a threat assessment on the risks associated with the invocation of the EA. He felt an obligation to clearly convey the service's position that there did not exist a threat to the security of Canada as defined by the service's legal mandate. The threat assessment prepared by the service was that the invocation of the emergencies legislation risked further inflaming IMV rhetoric and individuals holding accelerationist or anti-government views. You were told that, is that correct? That is correct. But don't worry, guys. I mean, yes, the CSIS itself did not actually think of this as a threat to national security, but the director of CSIS came out and said, well, you know what, Justin, I think you should invoke it anyway, so I guess it's all right. Under CSIS's mandate, the head of the spy agency said the so-called Freedom Convoy never fit its definition of a threat to the security of Canada. But David Vigneault was part of cabinet meetings where use of the Emergency Act was debated. He told the commission Monday that in those meetings, he told the Prime Minister the act should be invoked, that its definition of a threat was different from that of CSIS. That opinion was provided, if you want, as a uh, uh, national security advisor, as opposed to a, uh, the director of CSIS specifically. Now, if we can go back to that sentence at the bottom of, of page 8, I understand, I think it, it, that the words do speak for themselves, but I want to make sure I understand your, your sense of them, that based on your understanding that the Emergencies Act definition of threat to the security of Canada was broader than the CSIS Act, then it says, as well as based on his opinion of everything he had seen to that point. So if I'm understanding the, the way you've put those two together, that if you take a broader definition and then look more broadly, you come up with the advice you gave to the Prime Minister of your belief that it was uh, required to invoke the Act. Yes, that's, a, that's exactly it. Thank you. Wait, so... They wasn't a threat to national security, which is one of the thresholds for implementing the Emergencies Act, but David Vigneault, the, the head of CSIS, just decided it should be anyway? It should be invoked anyway? What, what's going on here? What is with this contradiction? Well, we can get some idea of what's going on here from an article like this one. The head of CSIS testified and the Emergencies Act inquiry got even more complicated, and it's Basically, this attempt to wrestle with this question. Last week, news reports revealed that CSIS had conduct concluded that the convoy protest did not meet the legal threshold for a public order emergency. 
but then David Vigneault, the head of CSIS, testified that he had advised the Prime Minister that the act was indeed needed. See, it's complicated. Vigneault's argument comes down to this. CSIS conducted its own analysis and reached its own conclusion, but given other information Vigneault had, including a legal finding by federal lawyers that has not been disclosed to the public, and also, apparently, other classified information, he concluded that a public order emergency did indeed exist, despite CSIS's narrow ruling using its own definitions. This is complicated, and there's only limited public appetite for nuance these days, but I think I get what Vigneault is saying here. Just because CSIS concluded for its own purposes that the conditions had not been met did not mean that someone with other information, including the head of CSIS himself, could not then conclude the conditions had in fact been met. Sigh. Michael Kempa, a professor at the University of Ottawa, has an article in the National Post that makes an important point. CSIS doesn't get the final say. Its analysis is important, but not definitive. Vigneault pointed out that if the issues of concern and the triggering bar was at the same level for both CSIS and the federal government, Kempa writes, uh, that this would put CSIS in the position of being the final decider of when and whether the Emergencies Act could ever be used. Vigneault is right to say that this would not be an appropriate power for an unelected body, which is in no way aligned with the overall spirit and purposes of either the Emergencies Act or the CSIS Act. And then, as this writer goes on to say, the leadership of Canada's spy service must obviously be respectfully listened to, but they don't get a veto. No one elected CSIS. The cabinet is what holds executive power in this country. Ministers are typically elect elected members of parliament, and as such, they are responsible to the House of Commons. This is what democracy means in our system. So yes, consider CSIS's views. But remember that CSIS doesn't make decisions. Our responsible cabinet ministers do. So what do those responsible cabinet ministers think about this? Do they, do they think that the invocation of the Emergencies Act was totally justified? You better believe they do. We had a situation where for two weeks we had a protest that was national in scale that overwhelmed the resources of police and other border officials very deliberately for a protracted period of time where despite the existence of uh, statutes and resources um, and in my view uh, as informed by uh, counter operational tactics that were specifically deployed uh, to uh, to stop uh, people from uh, restoring uh, public safety uh, the extraordinary um, jeopardy that it placed our economy in, the thousands of Canadians who had their jobs interrupted, the fact that businesses were shuttered, that sectors were compromised, that are the literal and figurative engine of our economy. Um, the fact that all of this was tied to a politically stated objective uh, to overthrow the government if it refused to reverse course on pandemic policy and the challenges that were presented to uh, the security and intelligence community and the broader law enforcement community in understanding what the nature of this uh, protest was and why it was so difficult and challenging uh, to restore public safety all drew me to the conclusion uh, that, that we met the threshold. And ultimately, for me, at the end of the day, um, it worked. Um, it, I'm not saying that the Emergencies Act is a perfect instrument, and my sincere uh, hope um, to the Commission is that there will be some reflection about that, um, but it was uh, a measure that was successfully deployed by law enforcement to restore public safety without significant injury or any fatalities at all. And the fact that 
that as part of the invocation of this act, that we now have an opportunity to go over the circumstances that led to that decision in great forensic detail um, with witnesses testifying is, I think, an important pillar of our democratic process, which, of course, was one of the things that we were very much concerned with preserving throughout. So, I mean, that, that's, that, that is my answer with regards to the threshold and um, why I think it's important that I'm here today. Yeah, well, what would you expect? But it is on record now, and the various constituents of these various members of parliament now have documentary recorded evidence of exactly the position that their elected representatives took. We'll see what that eventuates in, but it is nonetheless all there. And all of this is, as I say, available at the Public Order Emergency Commission website, link in the show notes, as always. I think it would be worth your time to go through. And it isn't just all of this testimony from these various police officers and officials and cabinet ministers and CSIS directors and what have you. It is also testimony, at times quite emotionally affecting, of the people who were actually participating in this protest. Um, it ranged anywhere from 500 to 2,500 vehicles is, is what I was told. Looking in the mirrors, it was incredible to see the lights behind you and, and the long lines and watching the videos. It was approximately 25 kilometers long at some times. Did you ever expect that level of participation? No, not in my wildest dreams. What was your reaction when you saw the level of participation? Well, there was a lot of tears. Can you expand on that? Uh, emotions. We were uh, The things that we've seen out the windshield of the truck as we crossed the prairies and in Ontario, overwhelming support, people standing on the side of the highways, people lining overpasses. We were often late by or around two hours. We were never really on schedule. And people stood in frigid <coughs> temperatures, minus 20 to minus 30, just to get a chance to see us come through. Could you just perhaps provide some more context or an explanation about how it was the case that you received a phone, like what, what drove you to go to Ottawa after receiving a phone call from a man that you'd never met before, mm -hmm. who you didn't know anything about, that would have you leave, you know, your wife and your kids to go to Ottawa? What, what, what drove you to do that? To be perfectly honest, I think it was a, a case of fear. I had, um, over the time of COVID, noticed things that I never before believed that I would see in, in Canada related to the way the police and bylaw and the government were going after Canadians. And for the first time in my life, I was, you know, actually afraid of police. And I have several friends that are police officers. And I had a phone call with uh, Randy Hillier one day and Randy didn't know who I was. This was, uh, I sent an email to him and Roman Babber and other people. And months later, his office had returned the call and Randy doesn't even recall the, the conversation. And they said, you know, I spent 25 years of my life in the military and for the first time, I'm actually afraid in my own country. And he said, you know, never be afraid. Like you can't be afraid of the police or the government. They're, they're here to serve us. And I think for me that kind of flipped a, a switch uh, where I was like, I, I, I went from thinking I'm afraid to get uh, arrested or beaten by the police or getting an $880 fine to, you know what, now I want the fine. I'm done. I'm, I'm not going to hide from these people anymore. 
Um, and so that started to mentally transition the way I thought. And then we came to a point where I thought, well, at some point the, the lawyers are going to step in and intervene and, and start protecting the public. And, and they didn't, except for a few. Then when the COVID ma- the vaccine came out, I thought, well, the medical community is going to stand up and, and put a stop to this because of informed consent. And they, and they didn't, uh, except for a few. And it was the truckers that gave me an opportunity to actually get into, you know, fighting for, for my kids' rights. The frustration that you were describing with respect to mandates, did that feel familiar to the frustration you had been feeling with respect to the pipeline and oil and gas issues? I was much more frustrated over the mandates. And why was that? Because I was seeing families torn apart. The suicides in my hometown were so numerous that they stopped reporting them. Um, Elderly people were dying by themselves in long-term care facilities and saying goodbye over iPads. (laughs) My grandma is 94 years old and she was locked in her little apartment by herself for two years. And now that she can go out and do things, she's not healthy enough. She lost two years of her life. My father is, I'm so sorry. Take your time. My father is a very social man. He is the Coffee Row Saskatchewan father. And I remember him telling me one day that he went down to the local restaurant that he went to every single day. And these are small towns where everybody knows everybody, and he was asked to leave. And I didn't want my children and my grandchildren to live in a world like that. I was becoming increasingly alarmed listening to my prime minister call me a racist and say that I shouldn't be tolerated. I found his rhetoric to be incredibly divisive, and I'm a a believer that if you are a leader of a country, you have to lead all of your people, even if you don't agree with them. And I, I just saw so much. Coming across Canada every day, I heard stories. People, at least three people, would tell me they were planning their suicides until we started the convoy. Or stories of people that we were too late. I heard from families that were living in their vehicles because they'd lost their jobs. I heard from people that had lost their jobs and lost everything. I have the tears of thousands of Canadians on my shoulder who every day told me that we were bringing them hope. I saw little old ladies praying on their knees on the side of the road, and I saw little children holding signs saying, thank you for giving me back my future. And, of course, the whole show wrapped up with its thrilling conclusion, a chance to bring on some of the big guns for their their 
spot under the their turn under the spotlight as it were including that weirdly squirrely maniacally grinning strangely evasive and weird deputy prime minister christian freeland okay is tamara leach a terrorist it in terms of designating who is a terrorist and who isn't that is not my job as minister of finance or deputy prime minister okay. we have authorities whose job is to do that right and so it's not your authority to designate Tamara Lee, Chris Barber, Tom Marazzo, or Danny Bold for terrorists. That's somebody else has to do that. Yes, we have we have intelligence services, we have enforcement agencies whose job is to determine who is a terrorist. And okay, that's so, entirely appropriate. And this is a, a meeting with uh, Dave from CSIS. And if you scroll down, keep going. Okay. And there you say that you need to designate the group as terrorists. So but it's not your job but you wanted to designate them as terrorists, right? So that handwritten note in my notebook, I can assure you that was not a meeting with the director of CSIS. That's, with whom I didn't have a meeting. It says it's okay. It's uh, it's with David Vignon from CSIS. It doesn't say that. It says it's with a gentleman called Dave. Which Dave? That meeting that is not an account of which a Dave? meeting with Dave Vignon because which, I didn't which have Dave you, a which, meeting which Dave is in with those the notes, CSIS director. Which Dave is in those notes? What's Dave's last name? I need to see my whole notebook that you're referring to, but I can tell you it for certain. It only says certain, Dave. I, I can tell you for certain that I did not have a meeting during this time with the CSIS director. Okay, so... I can exclude that 100%. So, uh, one of the things that happened during the protest in Ottawa uh, dealt with the National Monument, the Terry Fox statue. Do you remember reading about that? I do. Yes, I do remember uh, the Terry Fox statue. I remember discussing it with my children. Yeah. Who were and, very upset. Yeah, and there was... And that... that Terry Fox statue, They're, they put a, a hat on Terry Fox's head and then put a flag in his arm, and then there was a mandate freedom sign on it. I, I don't remember specifically okay. what, how the Terry Fox statue was yeah. implicated in this, but I do remember okay. reading about it, and I remember, I, do, I remember it specifically because my children were aware of it and okay. were upset. Right, and so I went online and I just looked at how many times someone's done that to that statute and it seems to be hundreds. So I'm just going to put this one to you. If someone puts an LGBTQ flag on the Terry Fox statute and flowers in the statute, is that a desecration? I am not going to go into, I really don't think it's my job or helpful for Canadians for me to go into a discussion of what is okay and not okay but you've said it was Terry a desecration when, when you've called it a desecration in public, that was what you were referring to based on what was put on the statute. So is it fair to say that it's only a desecration to you if you don't agree with the message? 
again, you've made a couple of leaps beyond anything that I've said. And then the big cheese himself, Justin Trudeau, who showed up, of course, fashionably late for his day of public testimony. Uh, I think we're ready for the next witness, Commission Counsel. Shantona Chaudhry for the Commission. Our next and final witness is Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. Yeah, well. Um, maybe we'll take a few minutes. Uh, I'm not sure where the process is, a bit anticlimactic. Um, <laughs> Uh, so, should we take five minutes? Well, we, I think we'll take five minutes then and see. And you can come and get me when it, uh, it is. Thank you. The commission is oh, in recess no, for okay. five minutes. The commission on the minute. Okay. Go ahead. Go ahead. It's, a, it's just a bit of a false start. So, nothing to do with uh, your appearance. You're welcome. Uh, to come in, obviously, we're uh, happy to get started. A number of people have testified in this inquiry referencing your widely published comments and calling the unvaccinated racists and misogynists. And we have heard testimony in this inquiry about how some of your officials wanted to label protesters as terrorists. Would you agree with me that one of the most important roles of a prime minister is to unite Canadians and not divide them by engaging in name-calling? Uh, I did not call people who were unvaccinated names. I highlighted there is a difference between people who are hesitant to get vaccinated for any range of reasons and people who deliberately spread misinformation that puts at risk the life and health of their fellow Canadians. And well, my focus every step of the way, and the well, primary responsibility of a Prime Minister is to keep Canadians safe and alive. Right. So uh, in terms of safety, uh, you, when you met with, I'll, I'll reframe, Minister Blair, Public Safety Minister, Minister Mendicino, National Security Intelligence Advisor Jody Thomas and RCMP Commissioner Brenda Lucky and today you testified that the federal government was committed to exhausting all alternatives to a resolution prior to making a decision to invoke the extraordinary powers of the Emergencies Act. Do you agree that that accurately describes your government's position? that the invocation of the Emergencies Act was a measure of last resort, was not something to be taken lightly. Thank you. And something to do when, when uh, other options uh, were not effective. And you would, are aware that the OPP, along with others, developed an engagement proposal and you were advised of that proposal at the IRG meeting on February 12th, correct? Um, it was a proposal, but we had, and it was presented to us, we had more questions uh, about uh, how it would actually work. Uh, there, it was not a complete proposal. My last question, Mr. Prime Minister, 
when did you and your government start to become so afraid of your own citizens? That's a very I unfair. I am not, and we are not. Some interesting moments, to be sure, and some interesting issues that cannot be obviously adequately summarized or contained in this, which is a fleeting skip over the surface of some of the more clippable highlights of a commission like this that met for many, many hundreds of hours talking to and uh, going over documents and talking to various witnesses, getting things on the public record, getting into deeper issues than you would think about, for example, the necessity of invoking an Emergencies Act in order to basically mandate tow truck operators to tow trucks, presumably against their will, because why else was the Emergency Act invoked in the first place? And where did that idea come from? And was it necessary? And all of these things, the nitty-gritty details of it, as I say, you missed quite a wild ride. And beyond all of that, there were the more interesting show-stopping moments, like when the lawyer uh, questioning Ontario's Deputy Solicitor General Mario uh, Di Tommaso suddenly collapsed. Overwork, perhaps. Perhaps something else. Anyway, uh, it was an interesting set of proceedings, and uh, as I hope you saw earlier this week, if not, please do check it out, but I did get the chance to talk to two of the lawyers representing the Justice Center for Constitutional Freedoms that did have standing uh, at the commission, um, and that was involved in examining documents, talking to witnesses, and cross-examining, including cross-examining Pierre Trudeau. Not Pierre Trudeau. <laughs> Justin Trudeau. Funny how that works. Uh, I am talking about Rob Kittredge and Adam Keir of the Justice Center for Constitutional Freedoms at jccf.ca. And in the course of our conversation, which was aired earlier this week on corporatereport.com, I did have the chance to ask them about their own participation in those proceedings and how it went. Um, Adam, from your perspective, what were some of the highlights or lowlights of the various things that we saw take place at this commission? Uh, one of the uh, one of the big things that stood out to me was just how candid the police uh, witnesses were about what happened and how little they needed the Emergencies Act. So um, <clears throat> one of the things that came out in the very first few weeks of the uh, so I guess to take a step back, the commission kind of moved in a logical process from uh, residents of Ottawa and uh, Ottawa politicians and their complaints to uh, the Ottawa police and what they did with uh, the situation and the Ontario Provincial Police eventually towards federal bureaucrats and then right up to the prime minister himself. And so pretty early on, the facts on the ground got established and uh, you know, I think Rob would probably agree. We went into this expecting a big uh, kind of fight against the police officers to establish that they could have done what they did in other ways. But they were all pretty, uh, they all pretty candidly acknowledged that the emergency powers were useful, but not necessary. Uh, we got a pretty discreet list of things they needed to do with the powers and that all those things could have been replicated under other existing laws, which uh, matters because the Emergencies Act has a few different tests that have to be met for its justification to be lawful. Uh, the two big ones are that there has to be a threat to the security of Canada and that it has to rise to the level of a national emergency, meaning it can't be dealt with under any other laws of Canada. So uh, 
that was kind of our big strategy going in and that got taken care of in by week three, week four. Uh, and then the, the rest of the time we were able to focus on the different arguments that the uh, federal uh, officials were putting forward. Right. And just to underline that, there was sort of the, the difference between the police um, representatives who were basically, as you say, admitting that these powers were not necessary and the federal officials who were arguing that the emergency powers were necessary. That's basically it. Uh, for the most part, the police uh, really didn't want it invoked. They they didn't need it. Um, at the end of the day, uh, there is some evidence. So there were a few powers that were uh, created um, under the Emergencies Act. Basically, what what in what declaring an emergency does is it allows the federal government to sort of. Uh, have a, a, a temporary dictatorship where they can uh, where they can pass uh, regulations that uh, that create powers um, that allow them to handle an emergency. So this would be used in a time of war or in you know in a I don't know some major uh, natural disaster uh, you know where where it would have where it would be impractical or, or impossible for. Uh, you know, government to proceed as normal and vote on a, a bill to provide relief to somebody or something like that. Um, so the the measures that were put in place under the Emergencies Act, uh, some of the big ones, the the powers that we talked about a lot, were uh, strangely enough. Uh, this sort of became an inquiry in, uh, into a national towing emergency. Uh, there were, um, and I I wound up. Uh, I mean, half of my cross-examinations focused on tow trucks. I was kind of the tow truck guy at the, uh, at the commission. But um, the point there was that, uh, you know, it just so happened that uh, when the, the protests were sparked by uh, vaccine mandates for truckers who are driving across the border. And, uh, you know, it just so happened when he... Uh, pissed off a bunch of truckers. He pissed off a bunch of people who suddenly had a bunch of free time, uh, can travel. And when they travel, they drive giant uh, vehicles that are really impossible to move by ordinary, you know, ordinary means. Uh, you need a special heavy tow truck to move a, a semi uh, truck. And, um, and when the uh, protests got going, uh, there was some difficulty finding uh, towing services. Like uh, some of the towing, the the normal people that uh, that Ottawa used for that they have standing contracts with uh, refused to to tow. Uh, that may have been, you know, there's differing reasons that are offered for that, but probably a big part of it was uh, they're sort of allied with the with the protesters, as well as the fact that. Uh, a lot of their business, if you're a heavy towing provider, a lot of your business comes from obviously semi trucks and trucking companies. And if the trucking companies are, you know, protesting something, you don't necessarily want to side with the government and tow the trucks away. You might want to uh, say no and, and you know, uh, preserve a business reputation or whatever. Um, so one of the powers that was put in place with the emergencies uh, regulations was the power to basically order tow truck drivers to provide services. And that came along with uh, some provisions that made it easier to um, for them to get paid. Uh, they were indemnified for any damage to their trucks and that kind of thing. Uh, they were provided with guarantees of anonymity. Um, so uh, they could cover up their you know business name with a sticker or something like that. And uh, there are provisions in the emergencies uh, regulations that 
um, make it so that freedom of information requests wouldn't turn up the information about who provided towing services. Um, all of which, uh, as it turned out, uh, initially it looked like the, that power had never been used. But it turned out that the power was actually, or it seemed to have been used, but it was only used as a matter of convenience because the uh, the, the tow trucks had already been lined up in Ottawa by the time the Emergencies Act was passed, and or the emergency was declared. Sorry, and um, and uh, and the uh, and so the the tow trucks were already there and ready to go, but there were these extra indemnities and powers and anonymity and stuff that was convenient to offer to them. So, uh, so the, the act was used to quote unquote, compel them to provide services, but they were already there and ready to provide services. Anyway, they would have towed the trucks with or without the invocation of the emergencies act. It just was handy to have indemnities that they could offer. It made it so the, the, the bill was paid by the federal government, I guess, or so, you know, some streamlining of stuff like that. So it was a matter of convenience, not a matter of necessity. Um, and we wound up, uh, uh, wound up talking a lot about tow trucks then, and I'm talking a lot about tow trucks now, <laughs> which is probably a little boring, but, uh, but that was one of the big powers. One of the other big powers was the power to create an exclusion zone while the uh, police were uh, clearing the protest. So to say you can't come into this area, um, you know, unless you have you're here on official business or whatever. There isn't a general police power to exclude people from public spaces. There are common law powers that police can use and criminal code powers that police can use to keep people out of an area where they're conducting a, a, an operation, though. So if they were in the middle of clearing the protests, they could legitimately keep people from entering the protest area. Um, so again, the Emergencies Act created an ability to, to declare a, a certain area to be off limits to everybody, uh, and that was used, but it, it, would have, it, it wasn't necessary. There were common law powers that they could have used uh, to create that exclusion zone. Um, so I guess those were two of the powers, uh, and we you know, we the police were quite open about the fact that uh, that they could have and would have cleared the protests with or without uh, the invocation of the Emergencies Act. Once again, that was Rob Kittredge and Adam Keir of the Justice Center for Constitutional Freedoms at jccf.ca. I hope you will check out our full conversation where we go in in depth about the commission, what it achieved, or what it has done so far in terms of simply putting things on the public record and then what it is what the next steps in this process are before a report will be tabled before the uh house of commons and the senate on by february 20th of 2023 at which point obviously i do intend to update um, people about that report what it contained and what will eventuate from it and although uh, obviously we shall contain our uh excitement about the possibility of something being tabled here. Uh, it is interesting that people who were paying attention to this commission, who were there covering it, <clears throat> even people who had openly voiced their doubt about Justice uh, Rouleau, Paul Rouleau, presiding over this commission and his Liberal Party ties, have said that on the whole, it was not as bad as they were thinking it had been or could have been, and that they remain... Uh, at the moment, the non-judgmental about the way that this process will play out and what kind of report will be tabled. Although I suppose 
the fundamental question really is, what really is the mandate of this commission? What can this inquiry actually do other than table a report? And suppose they do table a report, and it does come out, and Rouleau says, yes, the invocation of the Emergencies Act was not warranted in this case. What would such a monumental ruling do to in any way shape influence or in any way actually affect the rule of the right honorable prime minister of Canada, Justin Trudeau? Well, the answer, of course, is nothing. I think what's missing there, though, is the or what in all of this. Mm -hmm. It's the same problem with the Public Order Emergency Commission. If Trudeau is found to have abused the civil liberties of Canadians by uh, acting like a tyrant, um, pulling the old Ahmadinejad on peaceful protesters in the town square, what happens to him? Mm-hmm. Nothing. He has the bought and paid for store-bought media who will run cover for him. He won't even, there's not even an option to give the man a $300 fine, like when he has his ethics violations. He could be found mm-hmm. uh, culpable in suspending the civil liberties of 39 million Canadians for matters of ego, and nothing will happen to him at the end of the day. So, yeah, it goes without saying that things definitely need to change because who holds their politicians accountable? The people do. And if the people don't actually have the power to do that, then what power do they have at all? Now, look, this isn't to say that the process itself is totally a waste of time. As I say, if nothing else, putting this stuff in the public record and having this information, these documents, these witnesses, these hearings, these questions, these issues there preserved uh, for the Canadian public and people around the world to look into, and I suggest that you do at the Public Order Emergency Commission website, that in and of itself is a valuable and important thing to document the history of this incredible set of events that took place. And although Justice Rouleau obviously does not have the power to unseat the Prime Minister, at the very least, if he did come out to say that the invocation of the Emergencies Act was unwarranted, it does something to scotch tape together the seal that was broken when that Emergencies Act was declared. Because as with so much of what we have experienced over the past few years, and as I have been at pains to stress time and time again over this time period of this generated crisis, the real point of the generated crisis that we have just lived through is the setting of precedence. And if they can get away with invoking the Emergencies Act against a protest that they didn't like, that really does uncork that bottle. And that the underlying and important point of this, as always, is that the the laws, the magical rules which govern our uh, the, uh, whatever geographical territory we're in, because whatever group of rulers have written down on some piece of paper that they rule over you, of course, it is whatever they make it, in whatever moment they make it, and they can declare an emergency. And if they get away with that in the court of public opinion and people go along and just think, oh, this is how the system functions now, then it changes. This is how change actually occurs in society. So the real point of this 
if you think the real point of this is the direct political consequence of what comes from this inquiry, again, you have missed the point. In the same way, it would be to miss the point to say, well, look, the truckers all went and they went to Ottawa and then they got kicked out by police. So what did it do? What did it do? It energized millions of Canadians. It crystallized and made physical the actual assemblage of people standing in solidarity saying, we do not go along with this. This does not represent us. This is not Canada. This, us here today singing O Canada with our flags and saying we will not accept these mandates. That's the type of place that we inhabit and that's the country we want to live in. And that is important. And when we start dismissing acts like that, when we start giving up the field of battle before it even begins, political, intellectual, societal, cultural battle, and say, oh, well, the police will come in. They'll, they'll rule it illegal. You can't do anything against the state because they'll just rule it illegal. And then what are you going to do? If we start to roll over and give in, then we have lost. That's, I think, what these types of inquiries and other things are, the, the importance, the potential importance of them, not what the political elites and appointees are saying amongst each other, not what the lawyers are saying or what these witnesses are testifying to, what the public understands and takes out of this and the way that we proceed forward into the future. We, as not just spectators, not just people munching popcorn, watching something on a screen, but people living in the world and enacting that. What does this affect in the real world? And that's up to us. So we have to understand the importance of these incredible events that have taken place this year. And I have, I did cover them at the time they were taking place. The States of Emergency podcast right before the Declaration of Emergencies Act. Uh, the Give, Send, Gone, the various things that I've covered in relation to this over the year, this podcast itself, and things that I will undoubtedly do in the future along these lines, I hope that people realize the hour of the time and how late it is and the incredibly important decisions we have to start making about our future and whether we are going to buy into the technologies that are creating the possibility of ever encroaching government a tyranny over our lives and how we will participate in that and go along with it or stand up against it. These are decisions that have to be made. And I do my part with the Solutions Watch series and looking at ways we can affect the world. But obviously it's not up to me or any guru sitting here on a screen telling you what to do with your life. It is up to you having the understanding and the desire and the motivation to do something in the real world. I only hope that in whatever humble way I can, I can contribute to the understanding of the incredible importance of these events and the times we're living through and the part that we have to play in them. For on that very heady note, I think we will end this edition of the Corporate Report podcast here today. But as always, I invite your participation in this process. This is not about me. This is not about listening to someone on the screen. It is about applying and understanding this in your own life. As always, all of the links to all of the information that I have cited today will be available in the show notes for today's episode at corporatereport.com slash freedomconvoy. I'm looking forward to hearing your own perspectives on these incredibly important issues, and I look forward to delving further into this in the future. But that's going to do it for today. James Corbett, corporatereport.com.